This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VaynerX Presents Marketing for the Now. I'm Andrea Sullivan, CMO of VaynerX, and I'm here with Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary, we've got one question today. Do you know what it is? How are you growing your consumers into fans in 2021? Let's go. Hashtag marketing for the now. First up, we welcome Netta Whitney. She is the SVP and head of marketing for Christie's. Netta recently joined Christie's, and it seems there is no coincidence with Netta's arrival and the $69 million NFT sale of Beeple's Art. Prior to Christie's, Netta spent two years or two decades, sorry, working agency side around the world, most recently at RGA as the managing director. A fun fact. Netta thought politics was her future, and she served as a White House intern in, under the Clinton administration. Welcome, Netta. Thanks, guys. So excited to be here. Hey, Gary. Hey, Netta. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing? Quite, quite well. Uh, thanks for being here. Obviously, exciting timing, uh, given all the buzz of the last couple of weeks. Uh, before I get into the question uh, for the show, why don't you give the audience um, maybe a one or two minute background on who you are. I'd like them to get to know you. Uh, I and for everybody in the audience, uh, I'm extracting a lot from Twitter in today's episode. First, big shout out to everybody on Instagram Live. I know the team is streaming it. We, the software we use doesn't automatically upload, but the team's holding camera to screen. So Instagram, welcome. Everybody get on Twitter, hashtag marketing for the now. If you have a question, there's the conversation and there is Netta's Twitter handle next to her name. So to that point, uh, Netta, give me uh, one to two minutes on you and your career. Yeah, as Andrew mentioned, I have spent 20 years on the agency side of things, um, working in New York, San Francisco, London, and Paris at all different types of agencies. Started my career at Interbrand and uh, brand design, and then spent some time in PR, 360, multicultural. And in the past 10 years, I would say I really focused around digital and 360 marketing. So most recently, um, as was mentioned, I was the SVP Managing Director of Client Services at RGA, where I ran a number of different businesses. Um, some really exciting stuff. I worked on Planned Parenthood. I worked on Uber. I worked on Amazon and spent the last year and a half working on the Verizon business there. So a very eclectic career background, a mixed bag of clients, and never had I worked in the art or auction space until I got a call from the team at Christie's. And it was a call I couldn't refuse. There's so much interesting stuff happening right now in the art and auction world. Uh, you guys mentioned the Beeple sale for 69 million. That is just the tip of the iceberg on some of the innovations we are working on here at the firm. And so it was a really exciting time for me to dive in to what we call in the agency world, a client side opportunity with a firm like Christie's and understand how I could help be a proponent for digital innovation, new customers, new clients. I love your question about how we're turning clients into fans. So let's, 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 go, let's go into that now. I think yeah. you know there's a lot of entrepreneurs who might have 10 clients on here and then there's C-suite executives who have hundreds of thousands. From your perspective, maybe in the macro and then maybe in the micro of what Christie's is doing specifically, how do you think about that question? How do you think about growing customers into actual fans? 
Yeah, I think, you know, Christie's is a 200 plus year old firm. So we got a lot of legacy there. And a lot of our relationship, our business is still based around relationship building. It is core to what we do. And it is that one-to-one -one relationship building of really knowing our clients, knowing the art and artifacts they're interested in and how do we meet that appetite. But as every single um, person I'm sure you're talking to out there is acknowledging, there's always the need to grow the lifeblood of your firm. And for us, that means new entrants into the art and auction space and intersecting with those passion points. So I think the NFT art that we recently sold has shown us that there is a completely new sector of folks out there that can really be engaged in the types of uh, offerings that we have. We had over 91% of the registrants for that sale were new to Christie's. So there's always the opportunity to build that, that client base. And I think for us, it's finding out what are the passions we can truly service, whether that's with um, burgeoning spaces like digital art, or today we announced um, the innovation in our sales schedule for our 20th and 21st century art. So we're gonna be splitting those sales to recognize the artwork done in the 20th century, and then create a platform for that done in the 21st, where those artists were dealing with really different topics like the AIDS crisis and race and gender and now digital art. So. See, seeing those trends and how they ebb and flow and how our clients are interested in them and mimicking that and being really stewards of the art world in that way helps our clients turn into fans. How do you think, um, how do you define a fan versus a client in that sentence? I think a fan is someone who wants to see what Christie's is doing next and what we're pinpointing. So in our industry, it is a duopoly. And I think because we sell unique art and artifacts, you're always going to want to buy the thing that resonates with you. There's no way that we can procure the exact same item as a Sotheby's or another auction house because they're one of a kind, which is a unique marketing challenge, right? To tell those stories with, with great regularity and frequency. But I think turning our clients into fans is making them want to hear the stories that we tell and the perspectives through which we tell them. So I think, you know, with this 20 to 21 shift, creating a platform for new artists, that's something that only Christie's is doing, really creating that platform and allowing that art to stand alone from some of the masterpieces that we're also known for in the 20th century. I think with acknowledging digital art and creating a space for it, again, that's something that Christie's did first and our clients can truly become fans of what we're gonna recognize next and open their eyes to. How do, how do you think a small business can use NFTs to their advantage during this time. Any any thoughts on that? Given your great background in agency land and business land, just to take a step over here to bring value to everybody who's consuming. Anything anything stand out? You have a hot take on that? I mean, it's so early, and so you know these are more hypotheses than they are, you know, realities just yet since it's so early. But anything stand out for you if you had like a if you're you have a best friend who's got a SMB. And they're like, oh my God, you just had that big thing happen. Like, how should I be thinking about it with my coffee shop or my direct to consumer, you know, olive oil or any thoughts? I think, you know, listen, I've been on a lot of Clubhouse talks lately. I've heard you talk about this a lot. And one thing that you echo is a lot of NFTs are not going to be the $69 million success. You know, there's a lot happening out there and we got to be really careful with 
what makes sense for a brand authentically. I think right now in art and auction, the space that really makes sense is this is something that can um, replace those certificates of authenticity, can really do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of provenance and making sure that the artwork, we know where it's been exhibited and who has owned it and create that trail of provenance. It's really, really valuable in the art space. I think for a small business, it's what is the thing with a lot of valuable and intellectual property that you potentially want to make unique to your brand. So if there is something you're doing out there that no one else is doing, how is there a way that you can use the blockchain to authenticate that and to own that in your space? It's, you know, for us, it's really scalable because there is a lot of question marks in the art world around provenance and other things. For a small business, I feel like there's less of a use case unless there's something immediately ownable that you want to make sure everyone knows is yours and yours alone. None of these things go so fast. I could have another hour. Thank you so much. Congrats on the role. Congrats at the great timing of being in that role and we wish you success. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Netta. Next up, we have Michael Lastoria, CEO and co-founder of Ann Pizza, a creatively led, mission-driven, culture-first pizza chain that was voted one of Fast Company's most innovated companies for social good. Referred to by Bloomberg as what Jesus might look like if he walked in a Yoji Yamamoto show, Astoria <laughs> grounds and pizza in a commitment to better flavor, quality ingredients, livable wages, and real actions. And pizza has donated thousands for local causes aligned with the company's core values. Welcome, Michael. Michael Thanks for having me. Friend. Gary, good to see you, brother. Great to see you. Michael, first of all, can we NFT your beard? Is that something yeah, like? I'd love to. Can, can we have that yeah. discussion? It's all great to see you. All proceeds to fight for fifteen. Uh, love. Uh, you know, I think uh, I'm really excited to get your take on this. I was excited that you were part of this one, so I'm going to get right into it. Uh, actually, actually, not, not true. One minute on a little bit of background of and pizza because I think uh, people should be aware of it if they haven't been yet. Yeah. So we have 50 locations spanning from Boston, you know, down to Virginia. Think about it. Um, and we're in New York City as well. We have, we have three locations in growing. Think about if Domino's had sort of a distant you know, cousin that grew up in Brooklyn that cares about living wages and environmentalism and, and really kind of reshaping the way that fast food uh, has been built right off of high quality jobs, high quality food under socially conscious umbrella. So we're doing our own thing, marching the beat of our own drummer and it's working and working quite well. So we're super excited. We're actually gonna open up 25 new locations this year and have 35 on the docket. Still look for us in a lot of uh, you know, cities on the Eastern seaboard to come. Given, given such an on-trend message for so many of the humans on earth, when, when we talk about the question of like turning customers into you know, fans, how does that how does that play out in your in your mind? Yeah, I think a few things. Number one, I think it really helps to be a purpose driven company, right? Having an ampersand for us that stands for unity, uniting the working class as your true north star, right? Early on in the pandemic, and this is mid March, we were the first company to raise employee wages, guarantee employment, strike a deal with Lyft to provide transportation from where people work to the pizza shops. Right, use our food to feed hospital heroes, doctors, nurses, administrators, cleaning staff. And every time there's a crisis, we show up and we use our platform, our brand, and our food to do the right thing by our people and communities. So that really goes a long way. And I think that coupled with, we built our own software stack. Our entire communications platform is done vis-a-vis -vis text message. We have frictionless lead generation and organic lead generation coming into the platform every single day. And then using that creatively to launch 
text-based flash sales, the way that we rolled out the Hospital Heroes program at Hero Pies is we had a daily lottery for the first thousand that text us in starting at 10 a.m. every day, right? With their actual employee hospital badge, we were giving free pizza too. So systems like that work extremely well. I'm so bullish on text message. I think brands are underutilizing it across the board. It's the most powerful tool that we've seen. And we've seen hundreds of thousands of new customers come through the text message platform intra-COVID. And that coupled with the moves that we made, the purpose-driven nature of the brand, and the fact that we had a software stack that we could transition from analog to digital overnight and thrive in a time where it's really hard for restaurants. The adversity of COVID for a business like yours, what non-scalable behaviors or what little tweaks do you feel you were able to execute on that did create more fandom? If any. Yeah, I mean a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it was over communication. I mean, one of the nice things when you have a text platform is you can communicate with your customers instantly and you can share with them. What Michael, the do you, things I'm sorry to interrupt. You, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. You because uh, now I'm nerding out. Uh what do you have a sense of what percentage of people that come into your restaurants you have their cell number? Yeah, it, it now is around sixty percent. Really, so it's that high? Yeah, two thirds of you, all of our transactions. Are you are you are you over incentivizing me randomly walking by a location in New York or Boston? I walk in. Are you over incentivizing me to give you your, the cell number? Well, the the way the reason the why it happens is a that huge number. It's huge. Well, number one, you know, two thirds of our business is digital, right? So people are coming through the platform ordering and our entire communications is done through text. And the cool thing is unlike most brands and we text out, it's two-way communication. So you can text us back. We can actually change orders mid-flight. So the fact that like the entire platform is text message based. You can't call us. You can't email us. So our entire customer service platform is text. I so see. not I'm only- I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize I got it. So the whole that's, that's communication exactly right. stack understood. understood. And, and, we and literally, if, if, Michael, like if, if I text, I apologize, but I'm now really enjoying this. Uh, if I text like, do you think the Jets will win this weekend? Will I get a response or, is, or is, does that ebb and flow where you got to take care of the problems first? And, this, and if there's an overflow, I might get a response or is it AI? Is there humans behind it? What's the punchline there? Yeah, it, it's primarily human powered, right? There is a little bit of sort of like chat bot, but that's only for yep. basic customer service questions around hours right, of like operation. What time? Exactly. Yeah, but you're, you're getting humans and the reason for that, and eventually there'll be some, you know, you know, artificial intelligence automation is that it's very important for us to act like human beings, communicate like human beings, because text, the first time someone sniffs out that it's actually not a real conversation is the first time that that person is never going to text you again because they're not going to believe in the system itself. And so 100%. we will absolutely respond to you if you ask who's going to win. And quite frankly, about 20% of all conversations are just that, which is have nothing to do with pizza and everything to do with just the personality of I the brand that. itself. And we love, love that, that stuff. And we give full permission, right? We call them the pizza plugs. You prefer it. They hook you prefer you it. Prefer full permission to say whatever you Talk want. Talk about fans. That's exactly right. Exactly. And we have a whole catalog of, of people texting us post like 12 a.m., which is just absolutely unbelievable. It's like its own like drunk text <laughs> category. And it's just people, we have a lot of fun with it too. And by the way, it's an incredible job of transitioning from the pizza shops themselves into corporate. Like it's an incredible intermediary job as people get their legs underneath them. And because us as a brand that we hire for personality, now you can work in corporate, 
using your personality primarily to communicate with our customers. It's, inc it's incredible. And by the way, it's the same platform we use to communicate with our employees. And so talk about having your ear to the ground. Yeah, I love Every that. single day we have that two-way communication. So there's never a time and a place where any single person that works for us doesn't know what we're doing, how we're thinking, and how they can get in touch with us. Michael Drew from YouTube says, hey Michael, I heard you. What does Ann Pizza offer that Domino's doesn't? So, I mean, high quality jobs, high quality food. Right. If you walk into an Ann Pizza, you'll see an assembly line. So similar to a sweet green or a Chipotle, you can co-create your own pie. And then if you go to order.annpizza.com or download the app, you'll see a whole wide variety of categories. Our skin right, looks a little bit more like Netflix meets caviar. So pizza categories and categories within that, all kinds of crazy pies that you can stumble across. So it's just high quality ingredients, different flavor you know, profiles. You know, healthier pies, right? We don't want to be branded as healthy pizza per se, because it's still incredibly indulgent and delicious. And then of course, everything we do from a CSR standpoint is very different. Talk to me about pizza culture for a second. Are, was, have we seen a rise in anything? Like, you know, for example, I'm a, I enjoy a good slice of pizza, but I'm like totally anti the Hawaiian pizza shit. Like do not put pineapple on my pizza. I mainly did that because here comes all the pineapple on top of pizza people in the <laughs> comment section. So I want to see who's pro that. Did we see any trends at your end of a new style over index, under index, anything we're seeing? I think three, three, big, yeah, three big trends like in, indulgent American only with higher quality ingredients, right? People want like better stuff. Number two, a heavy, heavy, heavy uh, trend in vegan. Right, we have pretty sizable vegan audience that kind of are some of the biggest net promoters of the brand. And the third thing is Southeast Asian, right? Which everything is having different spice. So you're seeing the globalization of pizza, like you are everything play out in a way where people are looking for, because then technically you can put anything on top of right dough and it can taste right delicious depending on like where you're sourcing the ingredients from. So there's a lot of flexibility. We built the brand around making pizza accessible for lunch and the globalization of flavor profiles. Michael, I really appreciate you being on the show, brother. Uh, continued success. You look great, as always, and, uh, and thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. We love all things V, so thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, Andrea, before we move on to our next guest, I want to just make myself clear here. I'm a huge pineapple fan in a silo. <laughs> it's when fruit goes into savory. Like, I love strawberries. Do not want strawberries in my salad. Big fan of grapes. Take them out of my salad. Love pineapple actually by itself and even mixed with coconuts for a little pina colada. Do not put it on my pizza. Just wanted to give that clarity to all the pizza. And have uh, you tried to do that recently though, Gary? You got to keep trying. You know, I'm always pushing new things. All right. all right. Next, we welcome Heidi Zach, co founder and CEO of Third Love, the third largest online bra and underwear company in America. Heidi left her job at Google with the dream of offering a better option, a third love where women don't have to choose between comfort and beauty. She is committed to advancing more women in tech and is an active angel investor in female-founded companies. Fun fact, Heidi is truly a superwoman as she's an Ironman at triathlete and a mom. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Hey, Heidi, how are you? Good, and I totally agree with you about the no mixing fruit with regular food, like to 100% on your on the same page as you. And I'm obsessed with them separately, but when the mix happens, I get a little weird. Agree. Heidi, give out one minute on uh, what Third Love is, and then we'll go into how we turn these customers into actual fans, not just good customers. I wanna get into that part, which we haven't yet. 
Yeah, so Third Love is a direct-to-consumer, 100% online brand. The only place you can buy Third Love is thirdlove.com. Um, and we've built an inclusive brand before that was kind of the norm. I think we've pushed an industry to totally change how they sell bras and underwear. Um, and we really focus on fit. So we're the only brand in the world that offers half cup sizes like shoes. Uh, we have 80 bra sizes instead of 40, like the average bra brand. Um, and lastly, we have a fitting room, which is an online tool to find your size. So that's kind of the core tenets of, of Third Love. Let me go to two places we haven't touched on yet to create a complete show. And yes, for all the people in the comments on LinkedIn, this is live. Uh, it is 12.21 p.m. on Thursday, it is Eastern, it is live. Uh, Heidi, um, when was the first time you remember doing something out of the ordinary in those early days to create a customer into a fan, whether it was taking care of a, you know, an, a problem with a delivery or something, surprise and delight, or had you, had you done any, you know, hearing your Google background, you know, I always wonder where people go into the black and white, the math, the Excel, the tech versus the gray, right? Like I did something early in my career where I drove a case of $30 wine in a snowstorm to a customer because I was trying to make a point to my 50 employees who watched me leave the store on the busiest day of the year for something that wasn't worth any money. So I'm just curious if you did anything automated or you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat early in Third Love's career that, that touches on this subject that we're passionate about, which is turning actual customers, not to better customers, but to fans, which is a whole different game. Huge. I mean, one, this is qualitative. I think all the best stories are qualitative around becoming a brand that women are like, I, I don't, I'm never going to buy anything else. Right. And that's the goal. Um, we had a customer named Hope. She's about 50 years old. This is about four years ago. And she emailed our customer service team, which got forwarded to me. And basically in this email, she said, I'm a huge customer. She sent a selfie of herself and her t-shirt bra. She said, I'm 50 years old. I look great. I love your bras. I just got your catalog in the mail. So we were sending direct mail at the time. And she's like, I was paging through it, super excited. And every single person in the catalog looked like they were 30 or under. And I'm annoyed, basically. She's like, that's like, look at me. I look great. Like, why don't you? Yeah, she's like, fuck you. Basically, you know, and she was a great customer. Yeah. Was annoyed at us. And it got sent to me and my head of creative and I got together and we're like, she is totally right. So not only did we reach back out to Hope. Keep but talking. We, yep. But we said to her, um, we said to her, hey, like, listen, why don't you fly up here? She lived in down south in Southern California. Why don't you fly up to San Francisco and be a model in our next shoot? And we put her in our next catalog. She was on social media on our website. So Hope, not only as a customer, but became a, a person that was part of our community, our brand. And from that day forward, we've been much more age inclusive. And that was something that's really important to us. So, you know, you'll see models who are over 50 because women who are over 50 wear bras too. They look great and they're part of our community. And so that was just a moment of listening and, and changing based on what we heard. I love that. Um, speaking of listening of what you hear, I'm reading all the comments, keep them coming everybody. And I heard my hoodie was rubbing on the mic, so I took it off and that's why I have a t-shirt. Sorry to step away for a second, Heidi. Uh, what is the, you know, you're a much bigger company now uh, as you keep building. What is, um, what is the current state of strategy around turning 2021 LTV, AKA, active customers and new customers from customer to fan. Anything brewing, any innovation, anything on your mind? 
Yeah, I mean, two big things that are already happening and that we'll continue to do more of this year. One was new categories. I mean, at the end of the day, women and what they're wearing, stating the obvious, are they're wearing much more wireless and lounge and all of that. So we've launched all those products over the past month and a half. Um, so that's super exciting. And then second is humor. And I think you could really relate to this. Uh, we launched a new campaign called Your Boobs Deserve Third Love. And it's women with life-size bras. It's about two and a half minutes on YouTube. It has over half a million views at this point. And when we oh, set up- I, I apologize to, on the half a million views. Uh, uh, paid media or organic? Because both are awesome. I'm just curious for my own self. Both. I mean, definitely yes. we're, yep. cuts of this are on TV. So if you're watching- women's history, you know, women shows on Hulu or linear TV, you're probably seeing the 15 or 30 second cuts of this two and a half minute long form content. It's on, it's across the board. It's our first it. fully integrated marketing campaign. So I'm super psyched about that. And when we took a step back last year in the middle of the pandemic, and we're like, we need a new campaign. We're like, what's missing from the bra and underwear market? And what's missing is humor. It's levity. Like sex has been used to sell bras and underwear, like from the history of woman and mankind, but nobody uses humor. So this whole, the whole thing is about like how funny it is that women have these like personal relationships with their bras. So in, 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 if you watch the segment, you see a woman, she's on a date. You think she's talking to a guy, it pans out. And she's actually talking to her bra being like, you're letting me down. And eventually throws a drink off. So, you know, it's just like, let's just like, like be a little more real. Mix it and like, up. You know? Yeah, exactly. So that's Mix what I'm up. talking about. I, I, I always felt that, bro, that brands and brand managers and CMOs and owners tried to make their brand so narrow, yet we as humans, the reason most people like us is the combination of four different things. Oh, I like your ambition and your kindness and a little sense of, like, it's fascinating to watch people try to box brands in when I think brands have incredible room to breathe. Absolutely. Um, what about, yeah. let's flip this upside down to yeah. bring people more value on the other side. When have you felt yourself in your life go from customer to fan? I'll give you a second, because I really want to give you like a chance to really think this through. Where in your entire life do you think, if you can recall, um, converting from user, buyer, to something that became more of like an advocate and fan and cheered for the business or the entrepreneur. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, I am very tied to all my angel investments. I won't talk about that. Them. But, you can, but, you, but you can. I mean, no, I, listen, I think it's a, listen, that's your real life. I asked you the question. Obviously, you didn't put money in just to quote unquote make money. You have an emotional tie, whether to, I heard it in the intro, a female empowerment movement, or you just love the product. So give me one of each, maybe one or two of the angels. And then just again, maybe when you were nine and it was Lucky Charms or seven, you know, I hear you're this crazy athlete. Was there a sneaker that changed your variable or, you know, something like that? Yeah, I mean, as an angel investment, I'm an advisor to a company called Bobby. It's a new formula company. It's bringing European grade formula to, women and men in, in the US. And I think there's a huge need, but what they've done really, really well is there's the emotional um, levity that happens when you're a new parent trying to get your baby fed. And especially if you don't have enough milk, all these things, and they've really, through everything they do, just tried to create that conversation and connection with our community in a way that I don't think has been done before in the space. And it's really, really powerful. And some people hate on it because for different reasons, but I, they have a very strong stance and a strong voice. Um, Love that. 
you know, I would say most recently as a customer, and I was just talking to the CEO um, last week. So Bomba Socks and Ooh. Dave and I were yeah, having that, well. telling him I've like literally just replaced my whole sock drawer, just like people do with bras. And so that would I would say as a category of me becoming a super fan. And it all goes back to product. Like at the end of the day, it's like third love, better product. That's what delivers the value to the customer. Were you aware of him because you ran in similar circles? Did you see an Instagram ad and tried it? Like, how, do you have any sense of how that went down? I told him this. It's funny. Yes, of course, I've known him. I met him a few years ago. I follow them on Instagram. I get their emails. I never converted. And one day I was driving. It was on Sirius. I keep hearing his ads all the time. And finally, around the holidays, I not only bought myself, but I gifted it. And then that turned into the whole thing. Love that. <laughs> I, it's so funny. I'm so hot on Spotify self-serve do ad product. I'm obsessed with audio. Love. Spotify at third love too. It's been it's been I a think, I think I think the voice feels I mean this is why radio worked for all those years. So anyway Heidi continued success. Thank you for coming on. Good to see you Gary. Cheers. Next up, we have Barbara Messing, the Chief Marketing and People Officer at Roblox. Barbara leads the innovation and growth strategy, establishing Roblox as one of the most beloved brands in the world among kids and teens. Prior to Roblox, she was the CMO of Walmart US and TripAdvisor, and she currently serves on the board of directors for Overstock.com and Diamond Resorts. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Hey, Barbara, how are you? Good. I mean, nice. talk, talk talk about fandom, this brand, geez, that you must be loving life to uh, to be at the helm of this because talk about true passion. Uh, Roblox has just an incredible fan base. I mean, this is where the product really just nails this question. But um, how long have you been there? I've been Roblox about six months. That's what I thought. So maybe a fun way to start before we go into it because I think it's gonna be very native to this brand. Um, what's been the biggest shock or interesting tidbit or surprise? Cause I know you probably came in very, you got educated, you did your homework, you did your thing, but you know how it is, no matter what, there's always something once you get in, in. anything stand out uh, as a interesting observation six months in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the biggest um, things that I'm really excited about Roblox is how big the ambition is of the brand. Um, I think everyone knows Roblox as kids and gaming and you know we're obviously huge with under 13s and teens i think where um, roblox is really exciting is really about this notion of the metaverse which you know a year ago if you were like tell me about the metaverse i'd be like really but um i'm really um amazed by just how quickly the metaverse is taping, taking shape and how roblox is shepherding it in and i think all these amazing new experiences we have on roblox is really telling that story about how people are living there digital lives, like very much the way they live their lives in real life. And so I think just that trend and watching it come to life has been kind of mind blowing. Because of that, and for everybody, you know, this starts getting in, Metaverse starts getting into these NFT dynamics. Of, are you finding yourself trying to explain the NFT craze to a lot of people because you have such depth of context because of the behavior that's always happened in this ecosystem? Are you finding yourself with friends, families, contemporaries? I assume this you've probably been pinged many times in the last hundred days around this. Um, is, it, is it funny to you that you know 100% this NFT thing's gonna happen because of the human behavior in the metaverse in your world? Like, is that been like a fun moment for you in a way? Because I think, I'm sure for you and the executives in the organization, 
it's kind of like, duh, of course this is gonna happen. I think what's interesting for us is, you know, virtualized, virtual currency, virtual items, you know, that is really the like how Robux has been built. And I think digital natives really understand that um, your identity and how you dress and, uh, you know, how you show up with your friends and hang out, so much of that is very native to many people as being just as valuable and important in the virtual world as in their real lives. And so I think that's the super interesting thing is, I think there's a set of people where this concept of like, well, is that real or is that as valuable? Like they don't get that, but if you've grown up and you really feel like this identity you created is just as authentic and true to yourself as it is um, in your real life, then it feels very natural. And you know, we have tons of content creators on Roblox. We have an incredible marketplace. And so for us, it does feel very natural that, you know, your attribution, your provenance, that would be really understood to be important. And that, you know, even from the beginning, I mean, that notion of really authentic creation has been core to Roblox. So it's been really interesting to see this really um, take off. I mean, you're right. In the last few months, it's sort of one of those topics that's exploded. But uh, in your career, which is amazing, uh, give us a story or two of like really watching with your own eyes and action, whether through marketing, through customer service, of truly targeting somebody from a customer to a fan, which I think a lot of my fellow executives tend to think of that in the terms that I think, which is they see it as a customer to a better customer. And I think there's a big leap to being a fan because now you're an advocate, you're a fanatic, you're almost irrational. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think when you get like a real insight and understand like, hey, why, what are we doing on the brand level to make people really love us more? And are we really understanding what their needs are? Are we really building for them, right? As opposed to what's good for revenue. And I think the best brands really design first with the customer in mind and know that, you know, your traffic's going to come, your revenue's going to come. I mean, Roblox is classically built on um, viral loops, right? So you have the creator economy where you have 8 million creators who are building up experiences that they themselves will love, that they think are cool. And then you have um, an incredible community of people who are coming because their friends have invited them and they want to hang out with their friends in these experiences. And then, you know, more creators come because they see that that's where the communities are. More people come because there's more experiences, different types of experiences. Um, and so I think that's when it's really sort of built because of, because by and for the community is just mm -hmm. nothing to say it. And, you know, you know, in my career, I've been lucky to work on other brands that have also been very community driven. And it's really fun. I mean, you know, what ends up happening is they sort of spawn the growth of of the brand. And, you know, again, as long as you keep focusing on like building for them, I think that really helps. Barbara, why do most companies and entrepreneurs on this video stream right now not do that? <laughs> In your opinion, honestly, I mean, I think, um, like it's, right? Because it seems so basic, and you and I were big boys and girls now in our career. Yeah, we, we see so much behavior that isn't that. What are the cliche reasons and the watchouts that you've seen in your career to not of why people don't do that or things they do or things of that? Yeah, nature? I mean, I'm sure I would love to hear your thoughts on this too. I mean, you obviously have built your brand. I mean, super authentic, really transparent. I love seeing what you are posting um, always. Uh, let me let me jump in to give you another yeah, second. Yeah, to give you a second to think about your 
for me, it's people are either forced to because they're a publicly traded company or they work for somebody to have to overvalue short-term monies the, and not actually build a long-term relationship. In, you know, so in your world, you're a major executive and you've got a board or a CEO or what have you who's holding you accountable subjectively on short-term business goals, which then will create for you not to be able to do that. For a lot of people that are watching that are entrepreneurs, they want to make more money this year to buy a nicer boat or car instead of putting that money back into the business and build something long-term. So for me, the reason I've seen, you know, that we even have to say things like do it for them, focus on them, for them. Like I don't want to make another piece of content creative on television or on digital that isn't something that somebody doesn't want to see like the reason people make that mistake is they're worried about the short term yeah i mean i actually i mean i agree with you completely on that i do think the the amazing thing about roblox is we have a founder who's been building this for 15 years and so this is the opposite of um, a short-term revenue focused company which is amazing i mean we have been always focused on the long term. And one of our core values is take the long view. And again, like if you're building a metaverse and creating a category that hasn't been done, of course. But I agree with you. I think think that sometimes people get focused on the short term. Fortunately, that's not the case with Roblox. And I even think with TripAdvisor, you know, very founder-based company, very much focused on building for a sustained long-term business. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's very much founder and CEO driven. And I think within the company, though, I think really having the customers at the center, bringing in the insights is really important. And I think that's where if you lose sight of, you know, what are you trying to solve for? Like, who are who is the sort of the bread and butter? What's your you know magic moment you're creating every day for those customers? Um, staying close to that, I think, is super important. Or did anybody win you over as a fan as you, the customer, during COVID or let's say, if not, over the last five years? Anything stand out when I say, when did you become a fan of a brand? Yeah, I mean, I would say this is, I mean, this is going to be an obvious one for people in tech, but I think Tesla is an incredible brand um, just because the innovation built into the product and the delight factor, I mean, there's some stat where like, you know, you're really excited and then you get the thing and then it's kind of like, yeah, you don't really care. <laughs> and I think that um, that is, you know, a daily use product, which is always super delightful. And it's because it's really focused on creating something new and unique and also sustainable. And so I, I love the values of that, um, of the Tesla brand, just because I think the product delivers and I love sort of the, the sustainability of, of what Tesla's doing. Robert, thank you so much. Keep up the good work. I'm so excited to see what you're going to do through this next journey as Metaverse and NFTs become top of mind, top of tongue. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Bye. Next, we welcome John Henry, co-founder and co-CEO of Loop. John is a Dominican-American entrepreneur and investor named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 among many lists and awards. Born and raised in New York City, John dropped out of college at 18, where he picked up a job as a doorman. He went on to start and sell his first business at 21. He later co-founded the venture capital firm Harlem Capital, raising $40 million and making 20 investments in women and minority entrepreneurs. He was the host for TV show Hustle on Viceland, produced by Alicia Keys and Marcus Samuelson. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. John, how are you, brother? What's up, man? Good to see you. Thanks Great for having to see me. you, of course. John, let's get right into the beef of it, actually, up front. What, 
when you hear the term like, hey businesses, you obviously have invested in a lot, you're extremely entrepreneurial, you're a consumer, um, you, I think you're an extremely good networker, so I, I think you. you're I think you're learning from the streets kind of like I did, more so than you know, a, a university of how to do business. And so I'm actually just genuinely curious, how do you interpret this question? Do you believe that companies understand fandom versus just better customers? When have you gone to fandom? What have you done right or wrong in your businesses? What have the 40 investments you made done right or wrong? Give me a, a John Henry manifesto for three to five minutes on this. Yeah, no, I think it's a super good question. I think at the corporate level, my first inclination is to believe that corporates don't truly understand how to activate an emotional response from your customer. And that's because there's an, uh, there's an over prescription of uh, assessing marketing via numbers. And I think that at the end of the day, you have to respond and uh, resonate with your customer deeply at an emotional level. So for example, when we look at our stats, yeah, it's easy to look through click-through rates and, and conversion and shares and likes, but what about some qualitative assessment? What about you know when someone takes time out of their day to write a paragraph response? I pay attention. Mm-hmm. Someone took two minutes from their you know what they were doing to craft the response, and you know whether it was you know uh, for what you were saying or against what you were saying, it's that emotional response. So I think ultimately you know, caring deeply about the customer is what's going to transcend any kind of uh, quantitative assessment of the customer. Of course, you have to have your paid infrastructure in place and all of these things to measure your effectiveness. But ultimately, I think resonating deeply. Do you think uh, that's a, do you think that's a very big challenge for startups since you play in that world? Because they're usually trying to get to certain numbers to raise more capital. I have found that a lot of startup founders love to talk this shit and make fun of corporate and straight up, they're worse at it because all they give a fuck about is getting to a number to get them the next round of fundraising. I have a very funny feeling that you have a real hot take on this because you've been in the depths of that world. Curious your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I learned this from you, to be honest, back in 2014 when I discovered your content and you hit me with the line that was depth over width. And I started to really understand that the fastest way to grow lukewarm is to have lukewarm economics work and throw a bunch of paid behind it to get to scale. It's an unsustainable scale. The true scale that's long lasting is built on resonance and resisting the temptation to want to grow quickly for growing quickly sake and instead dialing in your product and service. And for me, we measure smiles, we measure shares, we measure people talking about us. And when you're starting to lock it in, um, then I think it's a little bit more appropriate to put firepower behind it. So I definitely think that venture is at a is at a crossroads. Um, I think that you know the the amount of capital going into seed rounds. The average seed round has grown from one point five to two point three, two point five million dollars. The average valuation has grown from four to five to six to eight, sometimes ten to twelve. So like seed has seen is an incredible influx of capital, and I think you know I think uh, shit will hit the fan when it comes to the Series A there's gonna be a series A crunch and I think the best practitioners will stand out at, at that point. With Loop, what are you trying to do differently on fandom instead of just customers that you haven't done in your entire career, whether it was to doorman, to investor, to personal brand? Like what, 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 is your, what have your journeys taught you that allow you to kind of now apply them to your latest you know, co-CEO ship, co-founder in this startup? Yeah, we're gonna go all in on community. 
I really, really deeply believe in community as a moat. And I, I had the, the unique chance to chop it up with uh, Miguel McKelvey from WeWork. And he had told me something that really stuck in my mind. He said, John, when you look at your product, if you can develop an array of positive experience, that is how when someone walked into a WeWork space, it felt fundamentally different from a Regis because they chose buildings that were on the corner and got light from two sides and that you can see light from wherever you were and had a cup of coffee always waiting for you. Um, and so in that way, we're an insurance company, but we're a mobile only product and we move with you through time and space. And that's a really unique opportunity to uh, bring you from the online application that is Loop to some offline activations. So I think really, really deeply leaning into community is going to be the moat. It's going to be why you stick with Loop. For example, I'm willing to put money where my mouth is. Uh, and we're opening up 100% uh, of our customers have the opportunity to buy equity in Loop as an example of like we really want to push the mold and really deeply care about the same communities that we're insuring. I think ultimately that is what we're seeing as fandom is community. And, and creating, you know, I think with the NFT space where people are going to be able to get a piece of the royalties of a band or an artist and, and with all the law changes on who's accredited investor, you're going to be able to take advantage of that and create that from the forefront, right? hundred percent. And we don't need, you know, the community to be our rainmaker. Like we're still raising institutional capital, but to carve out a 25, 50, hundred K uh, tranche in our round, and have that go to our same customers so they can participate in the growth with us. It's super meaningful to me because, you know, by the time a retail investor gets access to Airbnb's IPO, you know, you've already missed out on so much value creation. So this is something that I'm super passionate about. Are you, are you, are, do you have any concerns about the amount of money that's going to be lost because people are going to think about like, ooh, I missed the IPO of Coinbase. And yet you and I know 99% of these businesses are going to go out of business. These are very high risk um, you know, investments, you know, it's funny. I started getting excited about NFTs, you know, uh, half a year ago, I started talking about it louder 90 days ago and about 15 days into talking about it, I'm like, oh shit, I've got to make sure that everybody understands this is internet stock 2000 and 95% of these projects are not going to be good investments or are going to have a big bubble burst with supply and demand issues. And then maybe long-term, any thoughts on that? When you, when you open that up, are you going to try to go? Cause you could lose your community when there's a down round and things like, you know, you might have cut, you know, people think of all the upside, like, yeah, we're going to have an awesome company. I'm going to go public. And everybody who's an early user is going to make a ton of money. Imagine if you were an early user of Uber, you would have made money. Right, right, but right. The problem is when the economy turns and you have to do a down round and everyone's like, yo, I put in money. I you know, how do you think about that things? Cause there's the way to be, we're talking how to like make enemies, not fans. You, you, you think about that? You know what? I hadn't even considered the the uh, <laughs> potential of a down round, which just tells you that I'm in like fast. I love it. You're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but but I think it's. A, I it's think a the good hedge. Spot. I think the hedge up front is important. Be like, yo, we think we're gonna win, but do not get confused. This is not like buying a stock on Wall Street. This is a very, very, very high risk. We think we're gonna take you to the moon, but you know, you know, invest through real education, we'll give you as much information as we can. Yeah, I resonate with that messaging. And I think ultimately, you know, we, we have the most skin in the game. I mean, I'm putting my blessing to this. And I think one good note too, is that the community is likely less interested in the profit outcomes and more interested in the idea of ownership and equity, which has definitely hit the cultural zeitgeist, especially no as a color. You want to be part of whatever it is that you're supporting, and I think it's a cool vehicle to to do that. Although we're not, I, I want, I want, I want to make sure that people don't get destroyed on ideology. 
because you're right. 100%. Not only minorities and people of color, youth. I mean, if you were 13, uh, the amount of, the amount of 13 to 18 year old boys and girls in America and around the world, but in America, because it's an entrepreneurial DNA, that view themselves as entrepreneurs, emerging influencers, mm-hmm. and investors is fucking staggering. <laughs> like, it's like hard to find one that doesn't think of themselves as at least one of those three, if not all three. And that is a, you know, talking to a 45 year old male who lived that life at 13 to 18 and couldn't find anybody to even believe in anything besides college. Mm-hmm. I think I'm bitter because I would have been flexing like crazy in grammar school if this was like the ethos. You know, and I wonder what that output means for like the next working generation, you know, like employment has shifted so much. Um, It's mostly a work from home economy and, you know, it's going to be exciting to see. Um, But, you know, I just want to say lastly here that content strategy has has played a really, really big part. And we subscribe to the volume strategy as you've preached for time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like the real output of a content strategy is when you go to local spaces, oh, people approach you and they have context on what you're doing. You know, that. social is the actual plumbing to human connection in today's age. So um, thank you for having me. It's been super, super great. It was um, great to see Looking you. forward to it. Keep too. pushing. More Good jamming. Luck. Peace. Andrew. Next, we welcome Dino Bernacci, CMO of the Cleveland Browns. Dino has made a career engaging with brands he believes in, holding rock star positions, including the CMO of Mazda and leadership positions at Harley Davidson and General Motors, and now the NFL, his dream job since he was a kid. One fun fact, his greatest passions other than his family, sports and music, are data and comic books. I like that. I need a better opening after listening to John for crying out loud. Dino, you have the best opening. Let everybody who's watching this knows exactly what's about to happen. This is going to be 10 minutes of pure explosive fandom. This is this is actual fandom that might have customers instead of what everybody else is trying to go to. So I'm excited you're here. I've got all sorts of feelings and conversations that I want to have with you. But how are you, my friend? I'm great. I, I was looking at... What's one thing that doesn't look like the other? It's me in, in this group. Yeah, because we have, I won't say fans, we have fanatics. They're just raving fanatics that love everything about this team. Yeah, I think to that point, flip it on me. Knowing your background, Andrew just mentioned it. This is the first time, and to your point, I do think you're different. Roblox, maybe a little bit, but not to this level. You are starting from fan then customer in a very, very, like nobody on this call will ever achieve the fandom level that you sit at the helm of from a marketing standpoint. But that has its ramifications, especially when the organization has gone through what this organization has gone through over the last, you know, many years. What, What are the downsides of extreme fandom when there's, in that, you know, Every year, everybody's disappointed except for one team. Obviously, right. last, year, last year was a great year, especially by Brown's standards over the last 30 years. Um, yep. Give us a little insight into that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I know a lot of brands are criticized. Ours is uh, always <laughs> out in the open. And, and by the way, you know, you might read about wins or losses when it comes to others. You definitely hear about wins or losses when you're a team and whether – you make mistakes or what is said or done. 
there is not a bigger stage you could sell me on than the NFL. And the fact that we are on that stage and we, we have to address our fans after every single game. Yes, we sit in front of media, but who do you think we're really talking to? It's our fans explaining how the game went, why it went a certain way, what we're going to do differently. You know, uh, uh, listening to the previous individuals, you know, they talk about emotion and rationalization. There's zero rationalization when zero. it comes to sport. It's all you, passion. You know, I am, I am literally bizarro reverse Gary in real life high energy, but incredibly practical. Just like wildly when you get to know me, like, so I've built good businesses. Jets, Gary? I, right. know, <laughs> eight, eight, I, I like love people, I'm like, I love people, I love people. Eight years ago, that's like two minutes ago, I'm 37 years old, eight years ago, I'm walking after a Jets game, a 12 year old child wearing a Tom Brady jersey is walking by me, and Dino, yeah. I, Hip checked the kid into a fence. This is abuse. This is this is assault. His dad turns to me and wants to engage, and I look at him, Dino, and say, "What the fuck are you gonna do about it?" Dick? Like that is not a normal person. Now that's you know that that's uh that's an obscene amount of commitment which a lot of fans have, and and you know we've been around for seventy five years, Gary. We, we, we've had some great runs and we've had some struggles, and you know our. The name of this team is a Cleveland Browns, right? Cleveland. And, and that's, we are part of the community. You know, we talk about community, which a lot of people think of social. We are a, a pillar in this community and people want to be a part of it. And this is the one thing you can really be a part of. You can wear the jersey. You're going to cheer like you just talked about with all of your heart for something. And that passion and that love is what so many brands try to proclaim and it's really hard there's a select few there's apple that people just love i was at harley davidson and i was telling you they're fanatics you know they love that brand and when you're a sports team especially on the biggest stage almost in the world with the nfl i mean it's a distinct honor but i'll tell you it comes with a lot and and so what do you do you know what do we do Uh, you can take away the name cleveland browns it just heightens or elevates what we have to do as a team. And I'll say even a brand because we are is it's simple, Gary. And I'm a simple guy. You got to listen. You got to learn. And then you got to leverage. And who no, are you I'm listening sorry to? sorry to interrupt, but I have a really interesting question. Unlike a lot of businesses, when you're talking business with brand sponsorships, yep, people buying suites, you know, what you just said is exactly right, but is dramatically more controllable in other businesses. You on the, are on the business side and you've got these business conversations and the person on the other side is pissed because you went four and 12 or you yeah. went seven and nine or, you know, like, you know, talk to me about the variable of like with Harley Davidson, like, you know, if they didn't love the latest release or something, sure. you can go and really talk to the company and be like, hey, can we talk about the handlebars or this and that? With the football team, you can't walk to the GM as the CMO and say, I need you to trade out the safety or why didn't you get signed Carl Lawson this week? You can't do that shit. No, but let's talk about sponsors because I think that's a really good one. Please. You can't, I, you're right. I can't control as much as I would love to what's on the football field. And they're very glad that I'm not controlling what's on the football field because they do a better job. But I can control how close I get us to our fans. 
I can control the amount of engagement, whether we perform or we don't perform on the football field. I can control what I can give as a as a sponsor in connecting with the Browns because last year was ama- amazing, but it's a moment in time. We're 75 years of rich history that people love, and whether we're performing or not, as long as we're out there playing and trying, we're gonna we're gonna sustain that love. Now I understand when the field doesn't perform, it's like when a product fails you. Are you gonna immediately walk away, or how is it that you're responding to your fan base? What are you doing or showcasing, encouraging that this is a moment in time that we're learning, that we're improving? It's candidly, you know. Uh, if you have a poor product, it's a poor product. You can't run away from it. If you do, it's a lie and it's not authentic and people are going to call it out. I think it's what you do in those moments and candidly what you share and you say with honesty and earnesty to those individuals. You're right. We had a rough drought for a period of time. But man, Dino, Dino you know that's an understatement. Uh, well, listen, it, it was a rough drought for a period of time. I think that's it's one uh, of the great droughts of all time, Dino. It is. It, it is. But you know what? Our fans didn't walk away. No. Our fans stayed behind us. They came to the stadium. They wanted more. And and the thing that at least, you know, our ownership has been able to showcase and, and, and prove is we've been putting those puzzle pieces together. And I think you know it, Gary, like any brand, nothing turns over, no. you know, no. overnight. Nothing and doesn't. But if you make good decisions, you leverage those, you showcase those, you talk about those, you build, dare I say, content in and around them. You can have people embrace and still believe in, in who you and, are. And you know, and you know this. It also then crosses over, even in adversity, you can cross into this different place. I mean, I still believe that the Red Sox and Cub fan base was the most interesting because of the nature of the drought. I have always adored Browns and Lions fans because of and as a Jets fan with that adversity, right? Like, you know, to me that is you actually compound authentic fandom in times of adversity. Without a doubt. And I'll tell you this, if anything I can leave you with is we do a lot of our, we produce our own shows and contacts. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, the X's and O's stuff works great, but do you know what one piece of content has stood above all others? It's a property we call Building the Browns. And it's the human side of these this team and this teammate that we do we do every single year. And you, when you learn who these men and these people are, you can't help but even get closer to, to the team 100%. itself. You feel like you begin to, and, to and know Dino, who they are. And Dino, you know this. One of the great misrepresented humans in our modern American society is the athlete. 98% of these men are the kind of men that you want your daughter to marry. They're the best. The headlines and the extreme mainstream media coverage over the last 20, 30, 40 years has people incredibly confused on the quality of the man and women in WNBA and soccer. Like, yep. it's, it really breaks my heart actually. It's something I'm very sad about. I think people go very cliche on football players and every and others. And meanwhile, the, the discipline, the kindness, the community service, yeah. the humanity, the it's absurd, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you're right. I'm telling you, having having dealt with this organization and, and the players, do you want to talk about the most giving individuals 100%. Who, who really to, to the community as well as to their teammates, let alone 
what they put on the football field is extraordinary and, and truly are extraordinary individuals. You're absolutely correct. And our goal, you know, to get more audiences uh, to love the Cleveland Browns, to get passive fans to become active fans and active fans to become evangelists is getting to know this team better and getting them closer to their team. Cause truly Gary, it's their team. I love it. Dino. thank you so much. Good luck this season. Thanks my man. Good to talk to you. Next we have Allie Webb, founder of Dry Bar, Squeeze, and most recently, Beckett and Quill, podcast host of Raising the Bar and New York Times bestselling author and guest shark. Allie was recently recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Women Building America's Most Innovative and Ambitious Businesses. A fun fact, she's passionate about love. After a rough divorce and major life reset, she just got engaged to the love of her life on Sunday. Welcome, Allie. Andrea, you totally, I'm so mad, Allie. I was gonna come hot with the congratulations. I saw the photo. Andrea, get back on here. I'm very upset. <laughs> you completely sorry, I love her. this one. I, I wanted to show you that I saw it. I was so in it. Thank oh. you, guys. Well, I appreciate it. It's nice, listen, it's nice to hear from everybody. It's been, I'm actually in the process of writing like a memoir, which feels weird because I feel like I should be 80 writing that. But I literally last night was writing about the really dark year, like and the specific time in that year that was really, really hard for me. And it's it's just funny to relive it and where I am now compared to where I was then. Life's wild, right? As you know. Long <laughs> and has so many opportunities for so many twists and turns. Allie, thank you for being on. Yes. You know, let, let's go to the dry bar days. Now yes. that we've got the incredible uh, excitement uh, out of the way. Um, <laughs> talk about real fans. I mean, I remember it yeah. just vividly living in the world, seeing, oh, wow, this this is a fan, fan yeah. reality. When, when did you notice customers becoming fans? Did you think about that? Did it start off as like enthusiast, like bigger customers, but then you're like, wait a minute, there's fandom here. What's been yeah. your relationship with, with you know, this notion of customers into fandom? Well, you know, I don't think I realized, you know, what what we had kind of inadvertently stumbled upon in, in creating Drybar. And, you know, very quickly it it would like caught on and to your point about customers becoming fans. It's like I, you know, I realized that like not only do people love Drybar and the experience and getting a great blowout, they really loved you, you like everything about it. They loved my story. I mean, obviously we were catering to women and I was kind of this underachiever who like found amazing success. And, you know thinking about coming on here today, it's like, it's, it's like authenticity and relatability. You know, I mean, I, for the first, like <laughs> five, six years, I mean, I was in the stores all the time and I was talking to clients all day long and I would tell them my story if they wanted to hear it, you know, and I would talk to people and, you know, I, I must've done this thousands of times. It just like, I loved it and they loved it and it built brand loyalty and they wanted not only did our our clients love the experience of driver but they wanted to get behind the brand because they liked what the brand stood for they liked that it was like a mom an entrepreneur you know a self-made woman at the helm of it you know it was like all of those things and you know when things went sideways and they did you know if someone didn't like their hair or we had to raise prices or we had to do things that kind of sucked we we came at it with this very authentic approach like we're going to be transparent with you if we mess up on your hair we're going to tell you we're we're sorry and we're going to publicly tell you you're sorry you know i remember you know over the years when when clients would publicly like back then when people were tweeting or instagram if they'd be like i came to dry bar and i didn't like this and i didn't like that i would publicly respond and my team would be like why are you going to draw more attention to this and i'm like 
Well, be, first of all, because it's important that we tell this woman that we're sorry and we want to make it better. And it's also important for other people to see that, like, we recognize that we fuck up and we just want to fix it, you know? And that, that I think that authenticity and being real, like, we're not perfect, we're human, we're doing our best here and we're going to continue to do our best for you. I think all of that, and I could, I could tell you so many more stories, but all of that stuff has like really created that brand loyalty. And I, and I think that people felt really connected to me, to the brand. And I think that's, that's where it really all started. When, um, when you navigate your world, because you've had these successes and, and built a brand so authentically around this genre, were you, were you, have you found yourself post this experience with Drybar being more hypersensitive to the way brands and businesses do react? Right, because oh that's, you know, I feel like that happened to me. Yeah, I can see, right? Like, I'm like. Like, I can't walk into a business without being like, are you guys kidding me with this? Like, I'm giving you my money. Why are you treating me this way? Like, it is, it's, it's actually always been a thing because my parents had their own business and my brother, my brother, Michael Landau, is my business partner. And we grew up in this mentality of like, you know, the customer's king, you treat the customer like gold. That's, that was ingrained in us as kids. So even, you know, pre-dry bar, especially like working in the salon business and, the way people were treated if they weren't like a celebrity or they didn't have the right latest handbag and like the salon culture really bothered me. And so, yes, I'm so hypersensitive. I think I'm more sensitive now to brand because I learned that through dry bar and through my ex-husband, cause he's such a genius when it comes to creating that brand that now I'm like, it, it's, it's like you could make three little changes and your business would be so much better, you know? And it's, it's like, yes, it, it drives me crazy and I want to go in and fix so many stores I walk into. What about the reverse? What about in the last year or two or three, or you could take us way back, a brand that really actually converted you into a fan instead of just a customer? Any stories on that front? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's sometimes, you know, when I've, you know, when you walk into a place and they, you know, they bend over backwards for you. And if they, to my earlier story, it's like if they, if something goes wrong and they figure out a way to fix it and you feel like somebody who's there working there really cares about it. I mean, you know, I mean, I was just in a, in a store this past weekend, I was shopping and, you know, shopping is like, you can't, you're we're just being able to start doing that again. I was so happy the store is open. I was shopping. This girl was great and she was bringing me clothes and she was really attentive. And, and I asked her, I said, are you the owner? You know? And she said, no, but I really appreciate the compliment. Like, of course she did because she made me feel very taken care of. She was bending over backwards for me. She was giving me options. She was engaged, but not annoying, you know? And it's like, she had that right balance. And so I naturally assumed she was the owner because that's usually what you get from an owner versus an employee, which is really the rub and the hard thing about having, you know, an, a business like ours that has 4,000 employees. It's like getting, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a lot to of people. Yeah. Listen, I'm a, I spend most of my time on HR and how people treat each other. Mm -hmm. and even at 1300 or whatever we are in VaynerX now, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's just, it's just, you, you, know? Want, you know, it's like, how do you get, it's, it's hard to get people, if they don't know it, if they, they don't know what they don't know, and if they've never been treated a certain way. You know, I always had this like fantasy of taking all of our employees to like, you know, the most high-end hotel where you, you know, the hotel, like the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton. Where, 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 where they could taste it. Yes. Where it's like, oh, shit. People are really amazing to me here. And, and, you know, you've experienced that. I've experienced that where you you go to a place and you're just, you're so well taken care of and it just feels so good. And, you know, and I, I always want, I always wanted our employees to experience that because if you live it, you can then give it back.
you know, we both grew up with the same mentality with the, with the luxury of having par- parents that have these businesses. Like to me, same thing, like mm-hmm. c- customer over my own self. Like forget mm-hmm. about employee, like period. Uh, yep. What would you tell, because there's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening, not just executives here. Do you feel that obsession of fandom for customer is a disproportionate superpower in year one when you're a tiny, tiny business and you are relying on that word of mouth? I, I feel like I have noticed people going from year zero to year one have ha- that a lot of people from a hospitality mentality, whether they went to Cornell and hospitality school but then started a business or parents yeah. that had a family business, that it's like that first year where like fucking every interaction is like everything, like you're yeah. so fucking appreciative and you so desperately need that person to create some word of mouth. So has seemed to be, you know, I'm, I'm blown away by people opening a store and not going ham on their first customers and yeah. taking it for granted. And I see those businesses lose a lot. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it is like, you have to keep the momentum going one way or the other. And I mean, that was a unique challenge for us. You know, it's like, I you know, recreating that moment where it's like, not just you as the owner, you know, and I think that's also like really empowering, you know, like our, our managers and all of our stores, you know, we would give them like, like a budget that was just like, do what you want with your, you know, with your staff, like in terms of like, you know, buy them Pinkberry on a, on a Friday, because it's like busy in the shop. And, you know, I think a lot of that starts that brand, the client loyalty and fan, it's like, if you're, if your employees are really happy and they love what they're doing, then that, that just permeates into the rest of the business. That was something that we would really try to, once we got so big, you know, try to empower our managers to, to be owners, you know, and I remember having conversations with managers over the years and they would, they'd be telling me something about the shop that they run. They'd be like, so in my shop. And then they'd be like, mm-hmm. no, I know it's yours. It's not mine. I'm no, like, no, no, I love that. Yours. I love yeah, that. I'm like, no, no, it's, I want you to have ownership. Foundational for fans. Foundational. Yeah. yeah. So if they were, love. they had that love and that, and it's like treated it like their own. They were not only going to treat their employees like their, like their own, but then the clients and they take, they take ownership in it and they take pride. And that I think is, is the thing is getting, you know, whoever's running your business when you get to that point of that you're so big that you can't be in it every day is, is, you know, that pride is, and it's hard to come by. I love it, Ali. I think you really laid down some real core foundational pieces here. Thank you for your time. Congratulations again. We'll see you soon. (laughs) Thank you. Bye guys. Next up, we welcome Michelle Harmon Madsen, the CMO of AccuWeather. She has held the senior most roles at ShopRx Lab, Fresh Direct, MediaVest, and 19 Entertainment, where she led sponsorship for American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance. (laughs) A couple fun facts about Michelle. She's a mentor to four women each year and she can dock a 50-foot yacht. Welcome, Michelle. (laughs) Thank you, Andrea. Great to see you, Gary. Michelle, it's great to see you. Before we get into anything, why is weather so hard to actually predict? Like one of my, like like I've been friendly through the years with a, you know, a, a weather man or woman or two, and it's like, you know, I find it to be one of the most fascinating things on earth. And since I have you here now and I've got this 10 minutes, I just, you know, I, I figured you probably have the answer now at this point. Like, what a wild game where people have like massive conviction of what's gonna happen tomorrow with incredible data, and yet Mother Nature's like, nah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mother Nature is a wonder into herself, correct? Right? I correct. mean, you can't make anything up more wonder. I mean, you think about this past week, you know, we had huge snowstorms in 
uh, Denver and Wyoming, like, you know, breaking all kinds of new records. And then we've got the Southeast, which unfortunately some really, you know, thunderstorms, severe weather and tornadoes. But I think it's really, what I love about the weather is it's universal. And, you know, it's something that touches all of everyone. So today in New York, you know, you and I, we've got kind of a little bit of a rainy day. So maybe our energy isn't quite what it's used to. I know, right? But I will tell you, my daughter is a huge fan of a rainy day. It's her favorite day, or I might prefer the snow. But to me, you know, thinking about as you're talking about, like, listen, it impacts everyone. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So when I was thinking about coming to AccuWeather, um, I came home from having some discussions and I told my daughter who's in high school. So at the time, I think she was a junior or so in high school. And I said, listen, I'm thinking about this opportunity with AccuWeather and here's what I'm going to do. And she comes to stop me cold. And she said, mom, weather impacts everyone. That's cool. And I thought to myself, she was right because it does. It impacts us all in ways that you don't even expect. I love that. Um, when you think about fandom mm-hmm. from a customer, actually, you know what? Spend one minute to explain to people who are your customers because I think that might actually, you know, uh, matter. Yeah. No, when I think about our customers, it's interesting even asking the question, thinking about it, because to some extent we'd say, gosh, everyone potentially could be our customer because we literally, it's a global brand. We've got people everywhere. But I think what's also important to think about is why people come to us. And that's to me what always kind of mm-hmm. hits my heart. It's not, sometimes they need, they want to know, hey, what is going to happen today? What is the forecast? But oftentimes it's, you know, they may say, gosh, this is my want. I want this, but it's more about what they need down the road. So I will say, um, you may come today. Um, right now after this, you may say, gosh, I need a break. I need to get outside. And you're going to take a look about, um, you know, is it raining the rest of the day or can I get outside and get a walk, do some exercise? But you may also look at, all right, what am I going to do this weekend? What am I going to do next weekend? You know, can you plan some other things around it? And so I find that our audience are really, they're active, they're participants, they're doing things. And whether that is gardening to um, exercise to, frankly, you want to get the kids to the park and go to the grocery store during a pandemic. It's about being active with your life. And those are our, our fans. and our, our do, do you think uh, a lot of people actually, you know, you by nature of your product makes sense that you were able to go to that why. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of brands, a fashion brand, like what am I trying to express to the world yeah. or, the, or a food brand, like why am I actually eating that? Do you think that the nature of this business, because obviously you've done other things in your career, yeah. actually there's a big advantage there that forces you and your other leaders to really, really probably spend a ton of time on why and do you think that's a competitive advantage? Yeah, I mean, listen, we're, we are a purpose-based business. There's no question about it. And so thinking a lot about the why is really important to us because it's about, listen, I want you to enjoy 72 and sunny. Um, you know, that's fantastic. But we really want to think about how can we help you make really smart decisions for you and your family to stay safe. And that's a different kind of proposition. And so thinking about why um, and how we can better communicate that and better, you know, tell you about the impact is really important to what we've got to do from a marketing perspective as well. If I was if I was the CEO and came to you and said, okay, I need your number one KPI for 2021 based on where we are right now is to turn more of our customers into fans and and left and said, get back to me. Obviously that's very kind of gray. Yeah. And I and if and if I abruptly left, you're like this fucking jerk, you know, like, well, how do I convert? But like, if I actually said it in a nice way and we sat together, what would you, what would you think about doing? How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, well, let me back up. I'm going to tell Please. you, um, 
so last year, um, I came on board literally two weeks before we sent everyone home for COVID, but <laughs> we were, um, which was happening to everyone, but we were getting ready to launch our, our big launch for us. We were creating the new, um, newly redesigned AccuWeather app. And so to some extent, we were basically taking all of our current fans and we need to make them be new, you know, and we of course want to grow it. But one of the most interesting things about, all right, we're bringing creative in-house, we've got to brainstorm from remote, all those things that you weren't used to doing, was we actually launched a beta program for the app. So we would literally over 100,000 users around the world who were engaged. And these were fans, these were new, these were techies, these were early adopters, these were people who just said, gosh, you know, sign me up. But what was so interesting about that experience is we really gained unique insights on what was important to them. So everything from, you know, we changed the product roadmap. We actually said, listen, let's reinvent or re-put forward things that made sense to them based on feedback. We changed and really rethought about how we were going to be thinking about messaging for marketing. Um, we implemented different customer service in different ways because, gosh, it wasn't the questions we were expecting. And so it was really about being attuned to what the customers were. And we are still following some of that roadmap today. And so when we think about customers, it really is, I don't want to take my ball, uh, the, my eye off the ball. I want to keep them forefront. And how can I make the rest of the organization be as passionate about the customers as we are? I've been enjoying this question. What brand has made you a fan in your life? Whether as a young girl, recently, anything, um, anything stand out as a time you remember going from maybe a casual user or a heavy user or a lapsed user or a non-user into fandom? No, I don't. Immediately think of two. One is is um, I have to give some credit to Delta of late with their mm. continuing to do the middle aisle vacant. It's amazing how many people are saying I want to go visit a loved one, but I'm flying on Delta. And I think that's really interesting that they really they're, they're giving they're giving up some of the dollars on that, but they're winning that game. Mm -hmm. I think so. I, like I think that. That, I think it's I a think tremendous. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to bring a lot of value on this show because a lot of people are mid market and lower market. We have these big wig corporates, so a lot of my that is a huge statement, Michelle. Thank you for that. Giving up some short-term dollars to massively over-deliver for your customer builds real brand and long-term will really matter. Yeah, and it's amazing how many people have brought it up in conversation. Have said like, "My gosh, I'm really impressed." They're still doing the middle seat, and and that's I, anyway. I think it's you know a lot of the airlines get you know a lot of flack, but I I think that's been a big deal. By the, the way, Michelle, real quick on airlines getting flack, yeah. I think that it's the greatest the greatest showing of human entitlement in our society. Like, the, we are, so many people are scared of flying. So, so much of what delay, delays are built on are on overly aggressive safety protocol. And people like lose their mind. And I'm like, this is so crazy. We are so lucky to be in a society where like, when like, like right before all of COVID, the Wi-Fi is not working. And I literally heard the collective of the plane go, huh. and I'm like, the fact that we even have Wi-Fi on a fucking flying piece of metal in the air, the fuck's the matter with these people? Like I actually think the anger towards airlines is the greatest show of spoiled culture in the world. I really believe that. Sorry, it really just had to say that. You may be an interesting point. It really is first world problems because I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, you got to remember, like, if you think about, you know, safety, you just even, like, it's got a phenomenal track. Like, what do you want? Like, Michelle, no. what do you want? Like, it's way safer than driving a car. What do you want it to be like? Man, we're not quite sure about the wing gap, but fuck it. But Michelle and Gary are going to be upset if they're late. Let's just go with it. Like, what are people talking about? 
you know, it'll be interesting to see if people really change with all this stuff going on. And like, I feel like the importance of family the last year and in those connections, you wonder if people will take a little bit of a deeper breath moving mm -hmm. forward, because I do think people are bursting at the seams to come out right now. They're like, oh, just get me anywhere. So it'll be interesting to see if we see change and will people be a little softer, gentler, or will we be a little more edgier? Um, I think that's right. Michelle, so much fun. Great to see you again. Wishing you success. Next up, we welcome Jamie Goodfriend, global CMO of MGA Entertainment, a high growth global children's entertainment and play company with brands including Little Tykes, Rainbow High, and the number one toy in the world, LOL Surprise. Prior to MGA, Jamie held top positions at Expedia, Microsoft, CAA, WPP, and Hasbro. And a fun fact, Jamie's a passionate fan of the New York Giants. Oh. Uh, that I was holding every ounce. Though that, that being said, Jamie, uh, Vayner Sports represents Leonard Williams and he just signed ah. a big contract with your beloved Giants so yep. we can connect on that. And real quick, I apologize. I rarely do this, but Matthew Amir Richardson said, but Gary, we pay for it on the plain point I was just making. Yes, and you play, pay for food and sometimes it's 15 minutes late and you get mad. This is a plane. You're in the air, Matt. Like, do you want them to not triple check or make sure planes don't crash into each other? Anyway, Jamie, a real pleasure. Toys is one of my favorite categories. So, and I love your background. This is off to a good start. How are you? I am so happy to be here today. This feels normal, whatever normal is after the last year, but I'm so excited. And we have a lot of uh, friends who keep telling me, tell Gary hi. Same, same. So, I, 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 your name's been brought, I've been, I was really excited you're part of this and I hope it's the starting point to our friendship. Um, and you know, being a passionate football fan and being in the toy category so much, you really yeah. got my attention. I'm a, I'm a huge toy advocate from an IP standpoint, collectibles, I'm sure NFTs are running through your head every single day now with all the IP opportunities yeah. there. This is an easier conversation for you or the CMO of the Browns because you actually have fans and then it's like almost business backwards versus a lot of the people we're referring to which have customers that are trying to turn into fandom. What are the watchouts? What are the pitfalls? You've got this great career. You're at this company. That you've been at toy companies in the past. In your incredible experience, what, what, are, what is a tried and true method to get customers into fandom? And where do, because we've seen this too, where do great brands lose fandom and, and just start getting back into customer? What are some of the missteps? Just curious, just knowing we have your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, and I think it's interesting. Sports is such a great metaphor for fandom. And I also think investors are another. And I think if you look at both of those, it's all about the product, right? And if, and we start, I mean, I'm really lucky. So at MGA, um, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for uh, the founder, Isaac Larian. And 40 years ago, he had this passion for product. And that's what's carried this company through for 40 years. So just like sports or a financial product, it's got to be about really good quality. So if your quality gets fucked up, then that's going to be a problem. And you have kids, right? You have a, I heard tell yep, that you have true. a seven yep. and 11 year old, right? So you've been buying yep. a lot of toys. I know all about these things. So when, when you get that product home, if it's not amazing, you know it. And the, and the hardest fans, forget sports fans, kids, you know, there's no faking it. It's either they love it or they don't. And that is it. And you spent money. And if it's not great, so, we really take uh, a stand of making it an experience. And I, and I know that sounds like BS, but it's not. It's like 
get the package, get the box, get the unwrapping, the unboxing, all of those things. And then really trying to make sure that we're over delivering. And Isaac always says, it's like, you know, our, our profit margin could be a lot better if we didn't spend so much on the toys and we don't want to disappoint kids. And I think that's a that's job number one. It's smart. It's clearly founder led. It's all the same cliche things you hear because in 80 years, whoever's running this company is not going to have that same DNA. You see it a million times over. You know, you hope, but it's very hard. The people that create those things tend to give up money in the short term because of their depth of passion for that thing. Uh-huh. You, know, I, I, you know, with all this SPAC talk, Jamie, yeah. I, I'm yeah. getting bombarded. Take Vayner SPAC. Take Vayner. I'm like, yeah. guys, gals, you do not want me to take my company public because the first time I have to be on an earnings call as a public CEO and some nerd from Harvard and a hedge fund says to me, why did your margin go down this, this quarter? I'm gonna be like, I don't know fucking nerd because I don't live in an Excel sheet like you. I'm running a real business and I'm trying to build it for long term. And that when I hear you talk about that, that excites me. And, and to me, that over everything is how you build actual fans. Yeah, well, short-term, long-term, right? And you know, we have this phrase, it's like venture consumers. So people wanna feel like they know what's going on in the company and that they trust that you're taking care of what's important. And what's important and what works for a public company doesn't always match. You know, that, I mean, that's exactly what everyone's going through. A lot of companies that have gone public have seen what that's like because you spend so much time uh, working- Appeasing the market all that stuff and you can't really make the decisions and i think what's interesting at mga which is frightening and and also really powerful is the attention to detail down to the minute of like the the window is closing isaac and he's still tinkering with the details of the toys and it drives us all crazy and it's literally to the last minute and we're like we're gonna have to get a plane from hong kong or from our factory in ohio and ship this stuff out and we're gonna make less money and he's like it's got to be perfect. So that's, you know, that's that's kind of where we are. I think the other thing for us, and again, you have kids and you're so savvy about the world of the internet, is this idea of privacy and taking care of kids. Um, we've been on this really interesting journey. We work very closely with a company called Super Awesome that was recently acquired by Epic. No, yep. No. And I think privacy, um, creating fans when you're dealing with families, Privacy and you know being compliant and really making it safe for kids—that is that is quality and privacy. As I think that's going to be a big differentiator, and that is something that we're talking about every day, all day. Um, interesting statistic: I heard that um, every day, a hundred and seventy thousand new kids go onto the internet for the first time. Phew. Right? It's amazing. Do you let your kids go on? Onto the inter- onto the internet? Do they go to YouTube? Where where do they? Oh, yeah, go? I'm I'm a big believer that the internet thing is parents' excuse for not building self esteem and parenting properly, and that kids are going to be living in this world heavily. And the internet's not the demon; it's the actual work that parents have to put in to actually build a framework to allow their kids to absorb information. I don't know what fantasy land parents live in when they when you know kids have phones at 11 the hell do you think they're looking at at school or like like this this naivete and lack of accountability jamie of parenting (laughs) that everybody's like fuck facebook or you i'm like fuck you teach your kids self-esteem like put in the work so anyway i got my own very 
interesting, <laughs> passionate point of view on this. Uh, but because we lack of account, we lack accountability and uh, on a parenting framework. And I think we are asking the world to parent. And so I'm the beneficiary of the greatest mother that ever stepped on earth. And I know what that uh, meant. And I'm I know Jewish mother hearing that is the nicest thing you could possibly say. That's so Jamie, great. Jamie, we act as if we didn't have things. We had plenty of things, plenty of bullying, so MTV, yeah. Kate, Kate Moss was showing girls to be, to look like all the yeah. things that we, it always no existed. Sunblock, no sunblock. And believe oh. me, I, so we could get on the whole millennial thing, but like, um, <laughs> but I think, and that is a whole other topic. Believe me, when I graduated college, I'd rather live on the street than move home with my parents. That was- oh, Living with you, like taking your parents' money after the age of 22. Not happening. Is, is devastating because it's not, this is not judgment. This is me loving that 22 year old and saying, do not do that. Like no. live like dog shit. It, you'll be so much happier. So much happier. The amount of depression. But now you can be an influencer and make millions of dollars. Or, or Jane, because it's an important sentence, or 67,000, which is enough to get an apartment with two for, like, you know what I mean? Like, anyway, we're, go we're going in our tangent. All the hype through the years that we should be friends has been affirmed here. You dropped an F-bomb, you like football. We see a lot, I like it. L last thing, you a fan. What are you a fan of? From what brand has converted you to a fan? Roblox. And I know you're talking to Barbara. Yeah, it's a game changer, literally. And I mean I mean that literally. We've, we're investing in it big time for LOL Surprise. It's community. It's everything. I'm so excited to watch that company and that brand. They, they've just done such a good job. They over-index on privacy and experience. And I, 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 can't, I can't say enough good things about Roblox. Jamie, looking forward to more times together. Thanks, Gary. Andrea, put us two together. We need to be real, real, real friends. And I'm going to send you some toys. Please. I'll send you swag. I may, send, I may sell them on eBay. I'm that kind of no, character. Okay, sorry. I just want to be transparent. No, no. Okay, okay. All about the flip. Next, we welcome Samantha Malton, CMO of the Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit educational organization that sits behind Sesame Street. Samantha elevates Sesame Workshop's content and deepens brand engagement with consumers, partners, donors, and fans. Samantha brings 20 years of global experience in media and entertainment with major brands, including History and Nickelodeon. She and her husband have two children who think Cookie Monster works in the office upstairs. Welcome, Samantha. Thank hey, you so much you? for having me. Hi, Gary. It's been great so long. It's so great to see it's you. So good to see you. You can't even imagine. Like my, like literally, my cheeks hurt when you know it's been like six, seven years. You, you, I, I just really like you a lot, and it's great to see you again. And you're sitting at the marketing helm of one of my favorite IPs and platforms in the world. So it's just great to see you again. It's so great to see you. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank you. So. You know, again, what's been fun about the way Andrea and team set up this lineup, there are certain people that just naturally come in with fans, not just customers. And I, I would say this IP means that. But when, when you hear that the, the statement we're trying to do for today, which is how do we turn, you know, customers into fans, how does that land in your mind and how do you think about that? Yeah, well, well, first of all, Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit and most people don't know that. They just know yeah. Sesame Street, the, the show. So who's our customer? Children and families, right? And because we've been a successful, beloved brand for 50 years, we actually have three generations of Sesame Street fans. 
So we just actually finished a deep audience segmentation study and we zoomed out, we looked at, you know, who's our total addressable market. It's enormous. It's like 170 million people, but we really wanted to deeply understand who are those people, right? So not just parents of preschoolers, but who is more likely to stream our show, you know, and who's more likely to donate. And then we looked at web behavioral data so that we could actually find distinct viable attributes to reach them, right? So second, what are we giving them? And you say this all the time, right? It comes down to great content. We could have the best marketing tactics in the world. And if the content isn't engaging, it doesn't matter. Um, but our content is grounded in rigorous research to understand children's developmental needs and then the best ways to address those needs, all while engaging them in playful learning. But I think third, like where we're reaching them, and as a nonprofit, this is where strategic partnerships are really critical for us, right? We depend on our distribution partners to get our content mm -hmm. out. We depend on generous funding from our philanthropic partners to elevate our mission. Mm -hmm. And of course we use our own platforms, right? We have a massive YouTube platform to reach kids. We have our social platforms to reach adults and we go deep in communities with on the ground providers. But really it's the collaborations that help us show up in unexpected places like Super Bowl with our partnership with DoorDash. Um, and, and that's that's really, I think that was powerful for us. What most but at the end of the day, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. How long have you been in the role? Uh, it's about a year and a half now. What, what, what most surprised you? Because of course, like every other person watching this, you are aware of it. But what in that first 100 days were you like, oh, now I get it. Or, oh, I didn't expect that. Or, oh, this is so much more epic than I, than I realized. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, it's about the fans, right? It's about how um, our characters connect so deeply to people and it's about how they move through our brands throughout their lifetime, right? Not just the brand touch points, but I mean, look at me, like I'm a, I'm a mom of preschoolers. Right now I am living the brand day in and day out and I have a relationship to, to this brand also as, as, as a fan myself from growing up with it. But what surprised me is how people stay with the brand, even as their eight kids age out of it, like we, we have them for generations. Um, and, and that's the most important thing for us, right? Because that's where we're cultivating um, their relationships with the brand and then getting them to give back and donate. When um, you, you've obviously, and this is where we intermingled, like you've been around other entertainment, IP, things of that nature. What, what do you think it takes for a business to really, push over to the other side, someone um, from casual to fandom, you know, a fan, a fanatic. I remind people, fan is short for fanatic, like that means, you know, I think fanatic has a negative connotation, but like truly passion. What do you think are required to get there? Look, I think it's about brand authenticity. I think it's about being real and giving your, fans, all the parts of your fandom, right? We have so many different sub-segments, what they're looking for and, and giving them content that they connect with, right? For us, 
we're giving parents tools and resources to talk to their children about things that are that they are meaningful. We're providing you know educational content to preschoolers, but for fans who might not even have children, we're connecting them. We're connecting with them in a way that's meaningful to them. Like there was a tweet the other day uh, yeah, from Cookie that's Monster. Yeah, there's a tweet the other day from Cookie Monster, and I was just reading some of the responses. You know, it was like me no cry because um, Cookie is finished me smile because it happened. And something like that, I started reading the comments and I was like tearing up. One woman was writing about how she lost someone really dear to her and that meant so much to her, it made her day. Like just just you, being so authentic. Do you, yeah. do you believe that this brand, you know, what just hit me is like, right. I was about to say, how do you get there? But the reality is such a staggering amount of, at least American, I know it's an IP that goes global, society, actually grew up with it, which means even at 12, 16, when you think you're too cool for school, you know, Sesame Street has incredible potential to win on TikTok because everybody was touched by it, which means you don't have to wait until you're a parent of kids again. It's kind of always in play as an IP to get people to care. Yeah, look, we have 99% brand awareness. That's unbelievable. Um, but it, it really is about being authentic and connecting with our different fan segments in, in the way that's most meaningful to them. So I, yeah. Sam, talk to me about you as a human and fandom outside of the Sesame ecosystem. What in the last one, two, three years has struck you, has converted you from the casual to a fan? And what was the story behind that? Oh. What's can, uh, you know, look, I, I've been um, in the last five years, I've gotten married, had two children, moved to the suburbs. Um, so for me, you know, I could barely like, getting a shower a and waking, yeah, <laughs> getting a shower and, and having a little bit of sleep one night, full night sleep is, is amazing. No, but I mean, I, especially, you know, during, during this pandemic, um, just, just seeing a sense of community and resiliency um, is really what has struck me. Um, in terms of you know being a fan and a fan of brands, like for me, it's it's Costco, right? Like mm. I can get my I can get my diapers, my Shiseido face cream, like all in one place, and they've made it incredibly easy during the pandemic to curbside know, pickup or I mean I, delivery. Or, like or, I don't have to go anywhere. It, it you know to me that that is what I'm sort of living and breathing um, right now. But I think just getting back to, you know, to where we're going um, as a brand and what's next, I think, look at what's going on right now, right? We're living in unprecedented times. I think the world needs Sesame now more than ever. And it's become so clear to us that we need to help parents and caregivers be able to talk to their children about what's going on around them. I mean, the wave of, of racism, of xenophobia, the, the spike in, in anti-Asian hate, and we stand with you know with our community there. Um, Sesame Street was founded on the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It, it's part of our DNA, and we feel this responsibility to help kids make sense of what's happening. So, what's next for us? We're about to announce a major commitment to racial justice with a new educational framework, the ABCs of, of racial literacy and really give content to families to help them talk to their children about race and identity. So that. that's what I'm super passionate about right now. That's awesome. Sam, uh, final parting shot. Any time in your career where you saw an adverse moment in the company turn into a 
place of opportunity that led to fandom? Anything come to mind? Ooh, an adverse moment. Um, turn to fandom. I, you know what I think about without, to give you a couple more seconds to think, something doesn't land, but then self-deprecation or humor or accountability has been deployed, which then turns the tide of people that were most upset to maybe people that became huge advocates, uh, or maybe being on the receiving end of that. Maybe maybe in that Costco journey, they got the wrong shipment and the way they handle it. I'm, I, I think that we think a lot of times of like, I don't think people realize how the most negative moment is actually sometimes the moment that's most opened to doing something that can create fans. It's okay if there isn't. I was just curious if there was. Yeah, that's a tough one for, for me to think of off the top of my off the top of my head. Um for for Sesame, I think um I think I go back to, you know, the challenges that Sesame started uh to embrace and i think you know we we i think that's where i go with with our next initiative oh, right okay. now that's what we're so focused on um i think we've faced that throughout the years right sesame's always been on on the cutting edge of sort of of showing what um what kids worlds look like all the time and i think um i think every single time we've been criticized um, you know, we've we've embraced that and built it into our um, our, our DNA. Sam, it's so great to see you again. Continue. Oh, it's success. so nice to see you. We'll talk soon. Next up, we have Joey Gonzalez, the global CEO of Berries, the original cardio and strength interval workout. Joey began his tenure at Berries as a customer in 1997, and he became an instructor soon after. Worked his way up, eventually becoming CEO in 2015. While continuing to teach class, Joey uh, continues to grow the brand footprint domestically and internationally. Today, Barry's boasts over 74 studios and more than 150,000 engaged consumers a week. Welcome, Barry. Or Joey. Thank you. <laughs> I got they always call me Barry. I answer to it. Are you, are you, are you half-time Barry Gonzalez and half-time Joey? I am. I love that. I no, did I hear that right, that you're still actually conducting classes while like being CEO, is that true? Yeah, that's correct. I love that. Do you feel like, you know, I often talk about VaynerX's great competitive advantage is that I'm a practitioner of the content, thus my strategies and all this and the other thing are able to become real tangible and we're faster. Yep. Do you feel the fact that you're still in the trenches conducting those classes gives you a huge advantage to operate and see what's going on? A hundred percent. I mean, I have the 4D experience, right? As a client, always taking classes. Um, as an instructor, being in the red room, oftentimes with clients who have no idea that I'm the global CEO, which is amazing because then I really get to see all of our initiatives. Um, yeah, exactly. Taking place, what's working, what's not, why, rather than living in my glass tower and relying upon, you know, the feedback of people uh, around me. Uh, and, you know, also, as someone who's you know managing the business, when I'm in studios, I'm behind the desk and I'm answering phones and, and continuing to have those touch points, uh, and then obviously as CEO. Joey, what a, when you hear the premise of you know customers to fans, I feel like your category of, of the world, health and wellness, exercise, physical fitness, lends itself to that ability. And, and I know many people who've been obsessed with this, this brand and truly feel 
like fandom more than just like a good customer. How are you thinking about extending that? The brand's a little more mature now. It's in a different life. So I, lo- I love trying to get into the inside of that. Like, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, so I'll start off by saying, uh, obviously I was a fan of the brand and I have a distinct advantage of having experienced that customer journey of first timer, what am I getting into here to obsessed evangelist, right? So over the first 15 years of my tenure, uh, I was really highly focused on recognizing and maintaining the two things that led to my own conversion, which number one was the product, you know, the best workout really in the world that I have ever, that I had ever done, uh, efficient results driven. Uh, and then number two, this incredible feeling that I had of being a part of a community or as we call it in Barry's a family. Um, but then potentially more importantly, uh, I've actually focused on our areas of opportunity. So where could the brand go from here, right? And that's easy to see as well when you're a client. So improve the client experience, right? Premiumize the brand. When I joined as a client, there, were, there was one toilet in the studio that everybody had to share. <laughs> Today, you know, we have beautiful locker rooms and showers and amenities with Orbe hair care product and Dyson hair dryers. Sorry, sorry I apologize. Uh, Vader team, anybody in the Facebook page, there's a Gary V dot gift spam bot right now trying to trick people into clicking the profile and winning money. So A, that is spam. B, can we stop them? Sorry, Joey, go ahead. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, and then lastly, you know, we've been expanding our community, obviously, through growth. And we're now across 14 countries around the world. So what used to be this sort of connection to a very small, close-knit West Hollywood community has become this sort of gateway to uh, to the world, to a global community of, of clients that have a lot in common with you. I'd say- Please, go one, ahead. Well, one of your, I think, questions to a lot of people today has been like, how does that translate into 2021? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think lastly, but most importantly, we've become incredibly values focused, very socially responsible organization with our mission and our vision at the forefront always. And I think that this is the piece the one piece that's helped us the most over the past year, given how unstable things have been for everybody on planet Earth. Agreed. What? What? Do you have a sense of what triggered you into fandom? Like, really triggered you to that next place with with the brand? Yeah, I think it was the combination of it was that journey of being really intimidated by the brand, um, then having the actual experience of showing up and not only enjoying it but feeling embraced by you know, the front desk, feeling taken care of by the person next to me on the treadmill. So those are all the sort of elements of the experience that we've tried to preserve and actually enhance. I love that. Um, What about the ability to use digital for a business like this to advance people from, you know, uh, user, customer, occasionalist to that fandom? Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Thinking about your role about that business, I would be, my intuition, and I'm guessing, but I'm asking, is that must be a top of mind thought. You're talking about through paid social or are you talking about through our digital product? You know what's funny? Like, I'm less talking about the acquisition and awareness marketing side, um, but I'll be honest with you, I would also be thrilled if you took it there. I'm curious about when you have something that is physical, you know, whether it's the app, whether it's an Alexa skill, whether it's virtual, just curious about the digitalization layer of turning people from customers to fans. So 
I'd say one of the silver linings of the pandemic for us, like so many or the organizations, uh, was that we had the opportunity and the time to rethink of ways in which we could invest and engage with our community, which resulted in a lot of different innovations. Like take, for example, our berries and home product, uh, our berries outdoors product, of which we have several modalities, um, our berries open gym product, right? We just continued to sit back and innovate, which is one of our core values. And the berries at home was our first experiment with anything digital. And it undoubtedly highlighted a whole segment of the population who couldn't get to a physical studio, but was seeking that at-home workout with the personalized attention from instructors in an intimate setting. Uh, and one of the differentiators of Berries and most of the digital experiences and platforms out there is that it's a many-to-many -many experience. So not mm -hmm. only is the cam on me while I teach, the cam is on you mm -hmm. while you take. And so I'm not just performing on a stage. I'm actually saying like, Gary, flatten your back, soften your knees. That's not a correct deadlift, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm engaging with everybody in class and there's like a capacity on who can take class. So it's a much more hands-on premium experience. Um, and we've seen, you know, coming out of COVID, I think we can say that now we are officially, you know, beginning to come out of COVID. How does, that, seen, feel, how does that feel by the way? Like I'm like, I mean, the last two, three weeks, I'm like, wait a minute, is that light? Is that light? It's like, it's just like more and more good news keeps coming. So I'm just gonna, you know, yeah, exactly. keep my fingers crossed. But we've seen various segments sort of um, come out. And one is like the group, the population of people that has raced back to the red rooms and said goodbye, the digital experience. The second, which I think will be the majority are those that are having the omnichannel experience, right? They are racing back to the red room, but two or three days a week, they're joining us on our at-home product. I like and that. third, which I think is like the most exciting is that we've created this segment, this population of people who become members that have never and may never live close to a Barry studio, but they're committed to being a part of this global community exclusively in this digital way. Joey, sometimes Barry, thank you for being on the show, brother. Happy <laughs> All right, Thank you. Have a great one. Last up, we welcome Jill Crest, head of growth marketing at PayPal and Venmo, where she increases consumer acquisition and engagement. Prior to joining PayPal, Jill was CMO of National Geographic and a top leader at MasterCard. Fun fact, Jill has celebrated an annual pilgrimage to Rio until the pandemic hit. And she lives by her motto, start by starting. Welcome, Jill. Jill, how are you? I'm great, Gary. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm well. Uh, first, I like look in your background. I'm like, oh, she should NFT those paintings. They're so awesome. I love that. Um, it's all about the NFT. That's right. Oh, God, it's everywhere. Uh, Jill, um, Let's just go first into the question. You know, obviously PayPal and Venmo brand. How are you thinking about, or when, when a question like this is posed to you, how are you growing your customers into fans in 2021? Any emerging technologies, any, any overall strategies? How, how, do you, how do you approach that at your level? Yeah, so we've got these two amazing platforms, PayPal, which is global, 370 million users around the world, and then Venmo at nearly 70 million users. And you know, the activity that has played out on these platforms over the last year, since we've been in the pandemic, has been a huge inspiration for how we build community because we start to see all this use 
And it's really looking at how we're enabling what matters to people, right? You know, the way that they stayed connected to um, friends they cared about, people they cared about, causes they cared about, the giving that took place on the platform. And so it was through all of these use cases that we started to see ways in for PayPal to bridge the gap between digital commerce and physical commerce and launching things like QR code across both PayPal and Venmo. Um, on Venmo, we've seen that, you know, you know, Venmo, it's all about the emojis, right? So, you know, we started to see all these really great trends. In March of last year, we saw the mask emoji increase by 375%, right? So you see how relevant and contextual the interaction is on that platform. And then we saw people taking care of each other, right? Like sending money to their baristas or frontline workers. Um, and we saw just more commerce playing out. And so we have accelerated activity to uh, allow users to do more with Venmo. So you're going to see Venmo Commerce um, enabling small merchant, small businesses on the platforms. It's right. So it's like just extending, you know, the fun, inclusive nature of Venmo into the commerce space, bringing large enterprises like CVS on board to accept PayPal and Venmo's QR code. Um, so it's really understanding, like, what is the job that these platforms are doing for our users? How can we do more of it? And then how do we celebrate why it matters to the user and kind of step back from our role and celebrate our role as an enabler? Like it's not about PayPal, it's not about how, Venmo, how, it's about how you use it. How do you how do you get people to consume that celebration? Because to your point, I see a lot of companies evolve and have gotten to that thoughtful place of like, look, we're a tool. And what's far more interesting than the story of like how our pipes work is the empowerment of, right? Um, when you think about telling those stories in a 2021 way, where do you think about, A, the creative format pr provided and needed to get people to actually give a crap? Because I think it's a huge issue of like customers to fans is the creative variable. And then even to that point, the distributions. You know, you're a very advanced company how do you think about your media mix of like outdoor sponsorship, television, OTT, social, digital? Thoughts on that? Because we haven't touched on that a lot and I'm an admirer of your career and I'm curious of your perspective on that. Yeah, all of that plus in a really powerful way across our platforms, our owned access and how does that, con right. how does that experience come across to the user? So we've taken a ton of inspiration from the use cases that have played out. So in our content over the last year, you've seen us really highlighting how how PayPal and Venmo has served our users. So we did our kind of first ever hero anthem during COVID and it was a nod to all the jobs that the platform was doing. So during COVID, we started to see a lot of emojis playing out around like bread, right? And we started to see notes like bread for bread. And we look at that and say like, what's happening here? And it was actually kind of this craze around sourdough starters and people paying each other for bread. So, you know, we worked that into our hero film of, you know, um, how communities were coming together to just like get food on the table. And, uh, you know, we saw incredible rise of um, home care, personal care goods, you know, hair dye, uh, dog grooming shears. And so we just started to like focus in on all those fun, unique ways that um, consumers are using the platform. And we created all sorts of content, right? Like we we had, you know, a lot of uh, mid-funnel content that just showed those fun ways. And then explain, we tried- Explain, explain mid-funnel, Jill, for all the non-marketing nerds. 
like you uh, and I. Yeah, so a lot of digital, you know, a lot of digital content that you'd see across like public publisher platforms, lots of focus on social um, and using that to drive, um, you know, demand and consideration for our products. Um, Please. Yeah, so I mean, I guess to just go back to your question, Gary, I mean, we were, um, you know, we were at the, you know, some, for the first time we, we found ourselves in out of home to drive awareness around our in-store solutions. Like that was a big pivot, right? As consumers were not wanting to touch money, we, we moved into the physical acceptance space with QR codes. And so we entered back into out of home in big urban markets where, you know, you have proximity. Were, 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 of, you, were you concerned about people staying indoors during that time of that media spend? I'm sure that ran through your mind, right? Like you, we did, if you're buying a billboard during COVID, you, you just have to assume that their pricing structure, obviously I'm sure you've negotiated, but like, you know, there was obviously a lot more people indoors on, at unprecedented levels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we had a, we actually did really well with our out of home um, impact. So we did it in a way where we were able to isolate. We did a bunch of geo testing to see like what was the impact of out of home on top of lots of digital, lots of social and all the performance. Pay PayPal is a performance um, sure. marketing engine, as you can sure. imagine. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so, it was, so it was a good up brand offset, right? To was. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. saw awareness and consideration and, uh, you know, really increase in those markets where we had it. So, you know, consumers were, you know, we, we yeah. were strategic in where we placed it. Yeah. Joe, before we let you go and wrap up the show, um, you as a customer, yeah. which brand has been able to penetrate you, Jill, the human, not the marketer, and turn you from a user or customer until, until into, excuse me, an advocate that became fan-like? Across PayPal and Venmo? The nope. Two brands oh, that I look nope. after? Oh, nope. okay. No, no, you living your life. As a human. Yeah. You know, Nike, McDonald's, Sears, I'm just bringing up the classic. <laughs> but like, has a brand caught you in the last two or three years and really surprised and delighted you or made you a fan? You know what? So I I have been an avid member of the SoulCycle community mm. and I loved that that physical experience. Um, my, my affection has uh, wavered towards Peloton and it's been an interesting experience to see, yeah, to see like how that, um, that digital led brand and the way that they were able to really foster community um, versus SoulSeg, which was born out of community, but was very much around that physical experience. And yeah. God love them. They're trying really hard to make it work as they, you know, get their digital um, experience up and running. But, you know, it's the first, like, you know, we all have to work out, right? Um, I love to have my glass of wine. I have to offset it somehow. And so SoulCycle was the thing that got me to love working out, right? I do it five, six days a week. I still do. I've got one in the basement. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I've had a Peloton as well. And I think their, their, their community experience is something that we can all take a page from. Jill, I really appreciate having you on. I hope you have a great, great, great uh, spring. Uh, and thanks for sharing your insights. Thanks for having me. Take care. And that's it, Andrea. Thanks, Gary. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. Next show, April 15th from 12 to 2, will be focused on what's the future of music, audio, and sonic in 2021. We've got a pretty awesome lineup. The one and only Kara Swisher, One Republic's Ryan Tedder, and Clubhouse's newest joiner, Fadia, in addition to a long list of really fantastic brands. So please 
Um, continue to follow us on hashtag marketing for the now and check out our past recordings and info on marketing for the now on VaynerX.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for having me, everybody. Make sure you register, as you can see on the scroll down here, the next, uh, you do not want to miss the audio uh, episode. I think for a lot of you that I'm seeing in the comments, it will be an impactful one, mftn.vaynerx.com. Make sure you absolutely sign up. We'll see you next time. Thanks for being on. Hit me up on Twitter with your thoughts on today's show. See ya. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast. Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is Taught Me You Don't Have to Be a Tycoon by Johnny Pepper. Gary V has redefined for me what it means to be a business person. Used to think you had to be overwhelmingly win-lose to be hyper-successful. Gary V podcast has shown me heart, humility, and compassion can accompany awesome results. I hope he buys the Jets. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.